want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, if there's a if you brought a Bible, please turn there with me. If you didn't, there are some blue paperback Bibles near you. And uh, make sure that if you've got a kid near you, make sure that they are able to find their way along with us and follow along together as much as they can with you. Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 14 through 41. So the middle verses of this chapter. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Before we look at that together, let's remember the context. The first 13 verses of this chapter, we have Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the great celebration, a Jewish festival in Jerusalem. And we have the disciples with 120 of Jesus' disciples gathered together in an upper room, devoted to prayer and devoted together in searching the scriptures for faith-filled obedience. And in that context, a mighty sound, a rushing wind, uh, divided tongues as of fire descends, and this is the Holy Spirit that has been awaited, according to the promise of Jesus, to descend upon His disciples and sends them into the streets. And God, by His Spirit, moves the disciples, the whole crowd uh, are uh, are hearing the words of the gospel being preached and retold such that they believe the great story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is what happens when the Spirit fills a house. There's a, a great movement of God for the proclamation of the gospel and the transformation of the human heart. That's what we saw last week. Now, in the midst of this, the apostle... Peter stands up among the twelve and he begins to preach, as we'll read in just a few moments. And what we are going to find is we're going to find the first sermon in this spirit-empowered movement of the church to proclaim the gospel of the resurrected and ascended Jesus. I've entitled this sermon, and I believe it could be an appropriate title for the sermon that Peter preaches We killed Jesus. What shall we do? Now, the important thing that's true about this sermon, what stands at its center, is Jesus is at the center of the sermon. I want you to pay attention to that as we read it in just a few moments. Lord willing, Jesus not only will be at the center of the sermon that we read, but the center of the sermon that I preach reflecting on this sermon in Acts. Now, as we walk through this sermon, you're going to notice a few things. It was the way of Jesus himself. Even when he preached his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it was the way of Jesus to put on display the despair of the human condition apart from the grace of God. All right, That was the way of Jesus to put on display the despair of the human condition apart from the grace of God. This morning, I want to encourage you as we read this morning to to look closely, listen intently to how Peter does not shy away from speaking the reality of the people's sin and the surety of judgment. He's very clear and quite compelling about this. The people feel it. And at the same time, he speaks of the hope of salvation. Here's why. It is not until we have despaired of ourselves and any self-salvation 
that we can truly hope in God. This is the work of the Spirit and the Word in the human heart to bring that reality home, I pray, even this morning. Let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That's nine o'clock a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and all your And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord, Always before me, for he is at my right hand that I should not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Heavenly Father, this morning we are in need of your word. We pray that your word would preach. Your word would speak to our hearts, that your spirit would give us hearing, understanding, and that your spirit this morning, as we hear and understand and believe and are united in Christ, Lord, that you would make us also witnesses, proclaimers of this word that we hear. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this. In the name of Jesus, amen. This morning's sermon that we just read together, a short, sweet sermon, sorry. <laughs> this sermon is a, it was a well-ordered sermon. It's a faithful sermon. It does three things that really every sermon should do in one way or another. It's set within the context of the cultural moment. It addresses people right where they are, right? And where they are is shocked and amazed by the mighty works of God, even as some were mocking. And what we have is the defense of the works of the Spirit as the sermon launches. Then we have Jesus at the center of the sermon, Jesus attested, delivered, crucified, and raised. And then we have a clear call to faith in this Christ, this Jesus who is Lord and Christ, a clear call to faith in which they were cut to the heart. Let's look at this sermon a little more closely together by beginning at the beginning with the defense of the works of the Spirit. In verse 14, follow along with me. Stay in the text with me. Verse 14 says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. The apostle Peter stands alongside of eleven others who themselves were also apostles with the Christ from the time of John the Baptist, hearing all that he taught and now witnesses to his resurrection and his ascension. Peter stands with these. This is a truly apostolic sermon. This is not just Peter talking. This is Peter, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, with the eleven other apostles beside him, also declaring this in the languages of the nations that are gathered, a truly apostolic sermon. This is the center of gospel-centered. And here is what he says. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. Right from the beginning, let this be known. Right from the beginning, this sermon is a reasonable sermon. Peter does not play to the emotions of the people that have gathered that day. He doesn't play to felt needs. It isn't a particularly culturally savvy sermon, even though it addresses the people right where they are. It is a straightforward and reasonable sermon right in the midst of a mighty sound, a rushing wind, divided tongues as of fire. Peter stands up and offers a reasonable word 
about Christ. Let this be known to you. R.C. Sproul says this, Peter did not ask people to circumvent their intelligence because the gospel that moves the heart gets to the heart through the mind. What's the result of this most amazing, the most amazing manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God descending and coming upon His church to equip them for the ministry of the gospel, to be His witnesses as Jesus had commanded? What is the result? A clear, reasoned, biblical, impassioned declaration of Jesus and a call to repentance and faith. That is the definition of what it is to be a witness. And it is the work of the Spirit of God in the people of God right from the beginning. Verse 17. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit. That is repeated just a little while later in verse 18. Halfway through, I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. Why does he begin here? All right, why does he go to Joel? Well, the people were asking a question, and he wants to answer the question. The, the people were presuming and mocking that this must be a bunch of, of drunk people who had been together too long, and yet Peter says, that's foolishness. It's only 9 a.m. Right, he offers two defenses for the mighty work of God in their midst, and that it's not foolishness, but rather it's foolishness to mock. It's only 9 a.m. It isn't this time for drinking new wine. And then he offers the defense from the Scriptures. While he appeals to common sense, he also appeals to the authority of the Word, in which the Word says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. That goes on to describe the prophecy of the people who receive the Spirit. Prophecy in the Scriptures is... Uh, manifests in a number of different ways, but it is always, at its essence, three basic things. The essence of prophecy is to know, to understand, and to declare the things of God. Now, that can appear in a lot of different ways, and it does throughout Scripture. Sometimes it can be about things past. Sometimes it can be about things that are present. Sometimes it can be about things that are future. Sometimes it can be written. Sometimes it can be sung. Sometimes it can be declared in the moment. But it is also always knowing, understanding, and declaring the things of God. Now, what's amazing about this passage isn't that there's someone prophesying. That's happening throughout the Scriptures. What's amazing here is that all the people are prophesying. All the people know, understand, and are declaring the things of God. Now, interestingly, this is an answer to a prayer that goes way, way back. Numbers 11.29. I would encourage you to write that in the margin of your Bible. Right? You're like, well, I'm using one of those paperback Bibles you told us about. That's cool. Write it in there. All right? Numbers 11.29. But Moses said to him, speaking to Joshua, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. The longing of the the mediator between God and His people, Moses, who is making known the things of God as he knows them, understands them, and declares them, is looking at a people and he said, Would that they were all prophets. 
so that they would know and understand and declare even to one another and to the nations the things of God, Moses says. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, that is my dream. That's a prayer of every pastor. A laity empowered by God, one that is not satisfied with hiring professionals to do the work of ministry, but will come when their neighbor is in need and pray as priests for their friends. Friends, there is a place for the standing up and the normative proclamation of the word. Peter did it right here in the midst of God anointing all the people, right? And yet there is a place for you to go into the streets as a prophet of God and knowing and understanding and declaring the things of God. You say, I don't have it in you. I know you don't have it in you. I don't have any of this in me except for the Spirit of God who is promised according to the prophet Joel and came in a mighty sign to say, yes, it's really true. The people of God have the Spirit of God for the proclamation of the Word of God. It's recorded for us again in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free. And all were made to drink of one Spirit. As believers, we have partaken in God, in the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has actually come to dwell among and in the people of God that we would be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we have to pay attention to some of the content of this because I'm looking at verses 17 and 18 and thinking, if, if what I just now shared with you is all that Peter had to say, he could stop after verse 18. He doesn't have to continue the quote of Joel, but rather he's, he's offering a bit of a transition. He's moving from a defense of the fact that the Spirit of God is, is making known, making understood, and making declared the things of God to, to declaring something particular about who God is and what He's doing in this moment. And so we have verses 19 and 20. In 19 and 20, we have blood and fire and vapor of smoke. All right, any of the kids could tell you here right now, those aren't generally good things, <laughs> right? Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. These are signs of something disastrous taking place. What these are, they are signs of the judgment of God being manifest in creation. We know that because of verse 20. The sun shall be turned to darkness. The moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. If you long for the day of the Lord, listen, this is important. Know that it is true according to the Scriptures that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. Last week, or last month, we looked at question eight. The questions and answers that we're looking at together. Question eight says this, how does God execute His decrees? Here's how He does it, just as Joel is bearing witness here. God executes His decrees in the works of creation and providence. Right there in the midst of creation. Here's the deal. We have this idea that judgment is something that is far off. That judgment is, is for some ethereal spiritual realm alone. But what Joel is declaring is that the great day of the Lord is here. And there is a judgment of God that is active 
so active that it terrified the people who heard this, right? What shall we do? They say. God's work of judgment is being known and executed right here in the midst of creation. And right now, everybody should be a little nervous, right? We haven't yet heard the whole of the sermon. And so thank God he gives us verse 21 as well. Not only did he record it in the prophet of Joel, but Peter repeats it here, and he repeats it for a reason. Here's what he says. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's the thing. Verses 19 and 20 do speak of the judgment of God being manifest in the most visible elements of creation on the day the Lord comes, in the sun and the moon. The powerful reality of these verses, though, is not an eclipsed sun or a bloody moon. That's not the power of these verses. The powerful reality of verse 21 is that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There is judgment, yes. And there is salvation. The the critical content of the prophecy unleashed in the streets of Jerusalem is that judgment is coming down and it's being made known right here in the midst of creation. Mighty sound, rushing wind. And yet, right here, with judgment at our doorstep, salvation is being made manifest in the declaration of the gospel. Think of the word salvation for a moment. Does the word salvation mean anything at all if it's not within the context of some great disaster, some great judgment, but set within the context of the greatness of the imminent judgment? Salvation begins to ring with a sweetness and a hope, and we begin to have a a longing. It's why Jesus himself preached like this, a despair in the heart of man apart from the rescue of the Lord. But the rescue of the Lord is sure in the face of genuine disaster. And so what we have is the Apostle Peter begins to preach salvation. He begins to preach the very means, the center, the heart of the means by which there could be rescue for everyone who would call on the name of the Lord. And so what we have, beginning in verse 22, is Jesus, right? Jesus attested, delivered, crucified, and raised. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The people in the streets, they knew of Jesus. They knew of his signs. They knew of his wonders. They knew of his works. And the central purpose of the miraculous deeds of Jesus is to attest that he is from God. The central purpose of the miracles is an attestation of the truth of the Messiah. We know that for a number of ways. You might remember John the Baptist. John the Baptist sends to Jesus, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus, and he asks this question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you really the Christ? And Jesus, to make his case, says this. Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by them. You see, Jesus' miracles bear witness. They attest to the fact that He is from God. We have Jesus attested, and the people knew it. They knew of the signs. There are more than just 12 witnesses. There are more than just 120 witnesses. There are more than the 500 who saw the resurrection. There were multitudes who had Jesus attested to them by his wonders and signs. And then we have a word of Jesus being delivered. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Question seven from last month. What are the decrees of God? Answer seven. The decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His own will, whereby for His own glory He has foreordained whatever comes to pass. The definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. That's what the delivering up of Jesus is. God is working His will right in the midst of creation. We've we've already seen His working of judgment in the prophecy of Joel. What we see here is Jesus is the Lord God actively at work in the sending and delivering up of Jesus for salvation. We see here that He's directly at work. The crucifixion is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Listen, Jesus didn't get crucified. He set his face toward Jerusalem. And he went there and he walked that path according to the definite plan of God. It's not enough to say that God knows what's going to happen before it happens. It's not enough to say. It's not enough to say that Jesus knew what would happen if he went to Jerusalem. He went to to Jerusalem according to a definite plan, and he knew the results of that plan. Jesus was attested. Jesus was delivered. And now in verse 23, we see Jesus crucified. This Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That is so important, so sweet right here. In one verse, we have the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and the sinful labor of humankind. You crucified and killed. Peter directly lodges real human sin and responsibility upon the people, even as he has already explained that God was at work in the midst of these things. It doesn't seem to bother Peter. He, he does not have, seem to have any problem declaring the definite plan, the sovereign will of God at work in the midst of the responsibility of the people. Human agency, human responsibility, they don't seem to diminish the sovereignty of God in the working out of his definite plan. Not according to Scripture. It doesn't seem to have that tension that often raises up in us. We have Jesus who is attested. We have Jesus who is delivered up. We have Jesus who is crucified. And now we have Jesus who is raised. Verse 24. God 
raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Friends, that verse is the heartbeat of the apostolic witness. That is the very purpose for which the apostles were commissioned. That they would bear witness that Jesus is raised from the dead. It was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that Jesus would be delivered up. And it was the despicable deed of sinful men that Jesus was crucified and killed. And yet, Jesus is alive. Because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Listen, if you, any one of you, if I were to die for my sin, you know what I would be? This is an easy one. Yeah, dead. That's it. The end. But Jesus, he can't be held by death. Jesus, dying in the place of sinners, this is true, bearing the sin of the world, was himself perfect righteousness. Jesus has what Hebrews 7.17, another good passage to write in the margin, Hebrews 7.17, Jesus is what Hebrews calls an indestructible life. Lay sin on him. Lay the judgment of God upon my sin and your sin on His shoulders, indestructible. Jesus, the righteous one, dies in the place of many sinners, but rises victorious to declare that the righteous sacrifice worked. It worked, and He is alive. And our hope is that if He died in our place, that we could be raised with Him. What follows, I wish I had time to go into, But what follows is an extended apologetic, an extended defense for the resurrection. The defense, if I could just summarize it very quickly, the defense is David, the great ancient king of Jerusalem, and the author of most of the Jewish hymn book is dead. The great king. Dead. Verse 31. He foresaw that king who is now dead. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection, not of himself. He's dead. To this day, it says. He died, was buried, and his tomb is in our midst to this day, it says. He spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Verse 32. This Jesus, this Christ, God raised up. And of that, it says, we all are witnesses. The apostles are witnesses to what David spoke of. And in verse 33, I find this fascinating. Look at it with me. Verse 33, Being therefore exalted the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, somebody does something. Who does something? He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You know that that delivered up Jesus according to the definite plan of God? You know that crucified Jesus according to the the hearts of a sinful people? You know that one? He's the one who's doing these mighty works in your midst. He's the one who's poured out the Holy Spirit of God that he might be proclaimed. Jesus is truly the center of the gospel, even as the proclaimer of the gospel. And the people are dumbfounded when they hear 
and understand what is being declared. It is the risen Jesus who is at work in the miraculous events in the streets of Jerusalem. Verse 36, before the people respond, goes like this. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain. The Apostle Pete, that's a, that's a pretty strong claim. Listen, guys, he says. Everybody here, in the sound of my voice, there's something that by this moment, you should know for certain. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you killed. Luke chapter 1. Luke, the author also of this book that we are in. In Luke chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Luke says this about his writings. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have what? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Here's what that means. It wasn't just the people in the streets that day that ought to be certain. You and I have this witness recorded for us, not of the certainty of someone else, but that you and I would be certain the crucified Christ is alive because he is the Lord and the Christ. Jesus, Lord and Christ, is alive. Having received this, having heard this, understood it, it says in verse 7, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they began to respond. They began to respond and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Listen, the summary of the content of this sermon so far could, could go like this. Just six easy words. Jesus is crucified. Mm -hmm. Jesus is alive. And go reckon with that. Go deal with that. They did. They saw it. They heard it. And the way they, they dealt with it was to say, oh, what must we do? God was working salvation right as these people were busy killing Jesus. For me today, I can be assured that God is working salvation even while I was dead in sin. Now, they're cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? Well, we really have three options, okay? And this is not just for them, it's, it's for us all here. And really, we all fall into one of these three categories, you can pretend it didn't happen. You can join the mockers. Ah, new wine. That Peter. Crazy, drinking that early in the morning. You can just pretend it didn't happen. Join the mockers. Close your eyes. Claim that you can't know for certain. Ignore the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You can do that. But it doesn't answer the question that these people are asking. Secondly, and friends, this is a lot of us. You can beat yourself up. I mean, imagine being there. You're right. Not only did we crucify him, we handed him over to lawless men. We didn't even have the guts to do it ourselves. We handed him over to the Romans so we could say, ah, oh, that was Pilate. 
you know. You can beat yourself up. I'm a religious screw-up. Over and over again. I've got to do better next time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to join the religious establishment of self-righteousness. I will do better. I will be better so that Jesus doesn't have to die for me. More than likely, you wouldn't say it in quite those words. But we say it over and over again. When we don't say this, the third and and the only option that ends in salvation is you can repent. You can repent. It's not until you've despaired of yourself that you can truly hope in God. This is the work of the Spirit and the Word in the human heart to produce repentance. This morning, repentance. Repent and be baptized, Peter says. To be baptized is to identify with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Here's why that's so important. Because to identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus is to not deny it by mocking or indifference, but rather to say, what God did according to His definite plan did something about my sinful condition. And then don't replace it. Don't replace it. Don't, by, by religious self-righteousness, we declare, I need what He has done. That we would confess what Peter tells them, that this is for the forgiveness of sins. That we remember judgment. Yeah. And we remember salvation. Yeah. And so we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, everyone who has believed. Now, this passage says something at the end that I think is for us as we go into worship and as we go into our community. Verse 39 says, For the promise is for you. That's good news. And the promise is for your children. Oh, that, that's good news for us and ours. And then it says this, And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. You see, we were the far off. And we who were far off have been brought near. Having been brought near, we received the Holy Spirit. Having received the Holy Spirit, we know, understand, and declare. And you know what our business now is? To be witnesses, to go to the far off, that they would be brought near by the power of God. That's what it is to be a disciple, is to be a far off, brought near, made witness, declarer that others might be brought to God. The salvation the Lord works fills the believer for the purpose for which the Spirit was given, which is not only to forgive, but to make us witnesses. Being brought near, we've become prophets. The people who know, who understand and declare the things of God. We who were far off become proclaimers that others might be drawn near. Now listen. Very practical application. Consider that. Consider your disposition to the Lord. Which of the three responses is it? Will you mock? Will you deny? Will you try to perform your way into the kingdom or will you repent and receive? And for many of you this morning who say, I have repented, I have believed, I have been baptized, I have received the Spirit, let me ask you this question. 
Are you His witness? Well, I mean, I try to be, but I don't know a lot. Friend, you have the Spirit of the living God. You have the very one who empowered 120 who were fools just not long before to enter the streets of Jerusalem and declare the great things of God. This is what we have. And so witness is our work. Heavenly Father, what we need to do is we need to repent. For anyone here who has not placed their faith in Christ, repentance is the order of the morning. I pray that they would see the reality of impending judgment. Ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And that they would repent of their sin, receive Christ for the forgiveness of sin, receive your Spirit, and be brought near. Lord, that your love would be known to them. And for all who have received your Spirit this morning, I pray that we would be bold, that we would say, you know what? I do know, I do understand, and so I can declare. I pray that you would cause a great missionary work to happen out of this morning because your Spirit moves in the midst of your people. Thank you, Lord. We, we trust you for it. That's our only hope. We pray not because it's a nice little ending to a sermon. We pray because if it will be so, it will be because you have done it. And it will be marvelous in our eyes and we will be filled with worship and wonder. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your great name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.